For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Tonight's chant will be the Song of the Grass Hut. Um, but we start with the repentance verse, which we chant three times. Let me pull up the words. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, mourn through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, mourn through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Song of the Grass Hut. I've built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. When it was completed, fresh weeds appeared. Now it's been lived in, covered by weeds. The person in the hut lives here calmly, not stuck to inside, outside, or in between. Places worldly people live, he doesn't live. Realms worldly people love, she doesn't love. Though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. In ten feet square, an old man illumines forms in their nature. A Mahayana Bodhisattva trusts without doubt. The middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? Perishable or not, the original master is present. Not dwelling south or north, east or west. Firmly based on steadiness, it can't be surpassed. A shining window below the green pines, jade palaces or vermilion towers can't compare with it. Just sitting with head covered, all things are at rest. Thus this mountain monk doesn't understand it all. Living here, he no longer works to get free. Who would proudly arrange seats trying to entice guests? Turn around the light to shine within, then just return. The vast inconceivable source can't be faced or turned away from. Meet the ancestral teachers, be familiar with their instructions. Bind grasses to build a hut and don't give up. Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. Thousands of words, myriad interpretations are only to free you from obstructions. If you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from this skin bag here and now. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the song of the grass hut. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. 
to the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world. Gratefully, we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time. All honored ones, Bodhisattva, Mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaprajna Paramita. Whenever he's ready, tonight's talk will be given by Bo. I don't know if Tygen would like to do an introduction or not. Uh, just to say briefly, uh, for those of you who don't know Bo, he's a longtime practitioner at Ancient Dragons and Kit and is our Tenzo, which is a rather esoteric position during uh, Zoom. Thank you, Bo, for speaking tonight. Thank you, Tygen. Yes, very esoteric. I can't give you food through your computer yet but we're working on the technology. Um, so yeah, uh, <laughs> evening everyone. Thank you so much to Tygen for the invitation to say a few words to y'all tonight. Um, it's just worth saying how much of a privilege I consider this and I, that I don't take it for granted. And I, you know, I wanted to thank the ancient dragon community in general. I haven't been able to be as present um, for the last little while, but even in the absence of that time together, for me at least, I feel the support of this community and, and I'm deeply thankful for it. Um, yes, I'm uh, the Tenzo at Ancient Dragon, though I haven't had to cook food in like whatever it is now, a year and a half. Um, and I'm also just as, you know, a way to introduce myself, I'm a, a fourth grade reading and writing teacher at a Chicago public school. So that's my day job. Uh, and right now I'm reporting to you from the banks of the Delaware River here in upstate New York. Um, my wife and I are sort of fortunate enough to have been here in the eastern Catskills for the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's been a real respite. Pretty regularly we get to watch eagles and blue herons fly along the river, which is just in our backyard. Um, the fat groundhogs scurry to their underground hovels. Our dog has played more ball than she could have ever dreamed. So this has been, you know, after a year and a half of mostly being in Chicago, this has been amazing. Um, I'm going to, tonight I'm going to talk about um, loss, um, death. The sort of provisional title of the talk is, is practicing with loss. Um, We've all experienced a tremendous amount of loss this last year and a half as a country, as a world community. Um, we're always experiencing loss, of course, but my experience of loss this last year and a half has felt more acute, you know, and, and I assume that's the case for other people. And, and saying that, I also want to acknowledge that this loss has not been experienced equally across our society. Uh, it's a fact that there's just been more loss for particular communities, such as for black and, and brown communities in the United States. So I, I think it's always worth sort of acknowledging that this loss is not experienced um, uniformly. Um, I've been thinking of loss not only in the wider sort of societal way, but also closer to home. The school where I work experienced a lot of loss this year, some linked to the pandemic and some not. Um, to me, it was an inordinate number of, of younger folks, not necessarily students at the school, but um, people linked to them um, and, and to staff members working at the school, sons of staff members, brothers, mothers. Um, uh, I, I had a student who lost her half-brother who was only a uh, a teenager. So that's, that's definitely been on my mind. 
Um, and then even closer to home, my family suffered a loss recently when my mother-in-law uh, passed away. And this happened all rather suddenly. She had been sick, but the prognosis wasn't dire. She was expected to live at least, you know, several more years. Um, but then without warning, her sickness kind of took a, a very much a turn for the worse. And her life expectancy went from months to weeks to days in just a matter of a few days. So naturally, everyone was sort of in shock, including, you know, my mother-in-law herself, my wife, um, her siblings, nieces and nephews, and maybe most difficultly, my father-in-law, who um, she and he and my mother-in-law had been married for 55 years. So fortunately, my wife and her family were able to spend, you know, the last several days of her life together, um, talking, planning, laughing. But it was a lot. It is a lot. We're certainly still in the middle or wherever we are of the grieving process. I'm witness to my wife grieving in her particular way, her siblings grieving in their particular way, my nieces and nephews, you know, who are you know, young, um, are grieving in their particular ways. And of course, my father-in-law, who had been with us here in in New York for the last week and a half, he left today, but, you know, also witnessing him grieving in his particular way. And I have to say that it's been sort of a bizarre privilege to be close to that, to witness all these particular paths of grief, and then to experience my own as well. I realize, you know, we have these problem-solving brains. I do, certainly. And we often look at our emotions as a problem to solve. Um, My brain, at least, wants to solve grief as well, because grief can make you uncomfortable. You have this inclination to solve another's grief because you're not sure how someone is going to be feeling from one moment to the next, which is probably always true, but... It feels especially true with grief. Um, You know, I've witnessed somebody going from crying to laughing in, you know, in two consecutive moments rather quickly. So when you're in the midst of grief, your own and others, if you don't want to be frustrated all the time with your inability to solve it, then you have to kind of give in. You have to be open to it, Um, just given how sort of individual and inexplicable it is. Um, that, that's at least one of the lessons I've learned recently and I'm, I'm really thankful for it. I'd like to open the aperture of this inquiry now a little further or a little to, to make it a little more open, uh, or wider, um, loss, unfortunately, unfortunately, as I said, feels especially close at hand right now. And I mentioned the societal losses we've suffered, um, front of mind being especially the hundreds of thousands of people, the millions of people around the world who have died from COVID-19. But I'd also like to acknowledge the losses we're suffering from climate change. This has been a a very rough summer, a disturbing summer, now underlined by today's release of the latest um, International Panel on Climate Change report. As I mentioned, for these last couple of weeks, we've been privileged to be out in all this green, out in wonderful nature, although I sort of hate this distinction. We are nature after all, right? And Chicago is nature too. Our urban settings are nature. But out here, it's nature for sure. There's all kinds of birds here whose names, I don't know. There's black and brown squirrels. There are black bears. We haven't seen one yet, but, you know, I'm on the lookout and most magnificently, there's this Delaware River, which I can actually hear right now from this room where I'm sitting. And there is the sense of loss. As I've sat and watched this river and swam in it and watched people fish it, almost inevitably, I've also thought about, for whatever reason, the catastrophe that took place with the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest earlier this summer. I've been thinking about the hundreds of millions of marine animals reportedly killed by that heat wave. Sea stars, mussels, clams, salmon. The New York Times had an article about this, which um, had a photograph of a dead sea star that has really uh, stuck with me. I have honestly almost never thought about sea stars in my life, but the photograph of this dead sea star, it, it killed me. 
obviously, too, just that number, hundreds of millions of sea creatures, it's mind-boggling, as it should be. It's difficult to countenance. It's 3,000 miles from here where I'm experiencing the Delaware River, but I suppose I think of all that lives in the water here and there, and I pray for it. I want things to live until they're supposed to die, whenever that is. And selfishly, I'll admit that I'd prefer my experience of nature, again, whatever that is, to not always have this scrim of grief, this looming sense of loss. So a lot of loss, a bunch of grief, and not always knowing what to do with it. Sometimes wanting to be rid of it, sometimes being okay with it, sometimes able to experience the present moment, sometimes not. The question I want to ask here then is how to practice with it, what to do with loss, how to perhaps see it more clearly, be awake to it, and maybe how to make sure no one else dies. No, maybe that's the big question I'm talking about here, but I'm sort of joking. I do, I think, probably have a kid's eye view of loss. I think it can be sort of a naive view. I remember the first real experience of loss I had in my life, a family member I was very close to, an uncle, died in a motorcycle accident. He was just 33 at the time. And like I said, we were very close. I was shocked by it. My whole family was. It was one of those losses that kind of changes the trajectory of a family's collective life. And innocence my family had was sort of um, disrupted and changed forever. And I was aghast in particular at the sudden lack of a body at the space, the very particular body space left behind. It was like one of those scenes in a cartoon where someone runs through a wall and leaves the shape of their body behind. Like I said, I can have a pretty naive view of death, but that, that is how it felt. Where was this person we had had previous access to? Where had they gone? What powerful force was responsible for this? And how could this force be defeated? My thinking on loss, death, still to my surprise, kind of takes the shape of a hole in the world. With my mother-in-law's death, it's a sense of disbelief. That is my, what my wife and I keep saying to each other. We just can't believe she's gone. Maybe because, maybe because she doesn't feel gone. We can still hear her voice or laugh. We can still see her quite clearly holding forth in her living room on the accumulating troubles of the world. There is not a sense of permanence yet to her disappearance. It is like she is just around the corner. So again, how to practice with this, how to square the seeming permanence of loss, that particular experience of time with a wider sense of impermanence an experience of the moment that includes all moments and all time. I, only brought one Buddhist book with me on this trip. It wasn't on purpose. I was about to bring the Flower Ornament Sutra, but it didn't seem like uh, vacation reading material. The book I bought, brought with me is Being Time, A Practitioner's Guide to Dogen's Shobogenzo Uji by Shinshu Roberts, who is a, a Soto Zen priest. And she co-founded the Ocean Gate Zen Center in Capitola, California. Uh, and I think Tigan knows her. Um, since it's the only book that I brought with me, I've kind of had no choice but to turn to it for some guidance on these questions. Um, now, I've probably made a mistake in making this the only book I brought with me. Uji, or Being Time, is sort of a notoriously difficult fascicle of Dogen's. Um, I'm not going to explicate the whole thing for us right now. Just a couple bits and pieces that I found helpful with these questions. I'll start with the beginning of Uji. Dogen writes, as an old Buddha said, for the time being, I stand astride the highest mountain peaks. For the time being, I move on the deepest depths of the ocean floor. For the time being, I'm three heads and eight arms. For the time being, I'm eight feet or 16 feet. For the time being, I'm a staff or a whisk. For the time being, I'm a pillar or a lantern. For the time being, I'm Mr. Chang or Mr. Lee. For the time being, I'm the great earth and heavens above. 
The time being means time, just as it is, is being, and being is all time. And I'll read just a little more. The 16-foot golden Buddha body is time. Because it is time, it has time's glorious golden radiance. You must learn to see this glorious radiance in the 12 hours of your day. The demonic asura with three heads and eight arms is time. Because it is time, it can be in no way different from the 12 hours of your day. Now, let me first appreciate Dogen's unique ability here, his insane talent or skill for taking a a colloquialism like for the time being and taking it seriously as a piece of language. A piece of language we would consider more or less a cliche, a piece of language we employ without second thought or consideration. And then taking that piece of language, exploring it, twisting it, turning it, playing with it until it comes loose from its usual place in the language, until it takes on this kind of, through that repetition, sort of a holy resonance. And until it becomes by this miracle of his poetic aptitude, in my opinion, the basis for a completely unique understanding of time. Without getting too much into the particular meaning of the various designations here, the three heads, eight arms, the pillar, the lantern, that, that's way beyond my um, ability to, to explicate here. What Dogen seems to be uh, proposing is this idea that for each moment we all occupy both very particular times, being times, with being and time being co-identified, inextricable from each other, but also we occupy all being time and all time in the way that, as he explains just a while later, myriad phenomena and numberless grasses or things exist over the entire earth. And each of the grasses and each of the forms exists as the entire earth. Now, for me, at least that's a lot. Again, I feel like he's making a case for two kinds of time, the present and its particularity and all um, time, all being time, where all times coexist and are interdependent. Now, I can certainly appreciate this idea. I'm in this moment right now living out a particular Dharma position. I'm giving a Dharma talk. I'm trying to be as mindful as possible, giving this talk and occupying my position 100%. I'm enjoying, identified with this particular Dharma position. But this Dharma position, like any, will not hold. I will remain um, uh, in this particular being time until it it, it changes. Um, I'm giving a Dharma talk for the particular time being. And after this, who knows? Maybe I will be in the Dharma position of a staff or a whisk. Not likely, but practices and permanence. But more seriously, this idea of the Dharma position, its particularity and its fluidity, it makes me think of my mother-in-law and what her time being might be for now. For the time being, and, and I can hardly think of it, she is no longer a body, not in the way we usually understand it at least, not a human body. Instead, she is ashes. This was her wish, not to take up more space than was necessary. For the time being, she's ashes in an urn. Or maybe she's more than that. I have a hard time admitting that she's just that, just ashes in an urn, as if that, but as if the ashes weren't enough. She's also our memories of her. She's also the books she left behind, read and unread, and the letters and emails and texts she wrote. And like I said, her laughter, her jokes, which maybe still carry in the air. But maybe it's also okay that for now she is in this Dharma position of ashes. Maybe it's okay to just be where you are. You start to feel the leveling effect of Dogen's ideas here. We are all in our particular Dharma positions without hierarchy, really. And without a sense that anyone in this vast array of Dharma positions is out of place. 
This brings to mind one of Dogen's more confounding passages, at least for me. In the fascicle Genja Koan, he writes, firewood becomes ash. It can never go back to being firewood. Nevertheless, we should not take the view that ash is its future and the firewood is its past. Remember, firewood abides in the place of firewood in the Dharma. It has a past and it has a future. Although it has a past and a future, the past and the future are cut off. Ash exists in the place of ash in the Dharma. It has a past and it has a future. The first sentence, yes, I can agree with. I know Dogen was waiting for my approval. Once firewood becomes ash, it cannot go back to being firewood. However, we should not take the view, I think Dogen is saying, we should not have the viewpoint that ash is firewood's future. We should see firewood in its particular Dharma position without getting caught up in a sense of sequential linear time, without extrapolating what might come next. Too much, at least. Nevertheless, as Dogen writes, the end of this paragraph, ash also does have a past and a future. So yes, it would be foolish to say that ash doesn't have a past and future, but we may acknowledge the existence of a Dharma position's past and future without getting caught up in a too easy sense of linear and sequential time. I think it's worth getting quite specific here with how this plays out with loss. No Dharma position is permanent. Again, I am for now in this Dharma position of giving a talk, of saying a few words. My wife is downstairs reading the paper or watching a show. My mother-in-law, again, I can't believe it, is in the Dharma position of being ash. However, we should not assume that we will go from our particular Dharma position to some preordained future Dharma position. We should not have this viewpoint which is not the same thing as saying that we don't have a past or which we obviously do, or that we don't have a future, which hopefully we do. And in one form or another, in one Dharma position or another, certainly we have that future. So the middle way here seems to be between acknowledging the particularity of passing sequential time, our ordinary experience of time, and a more radical view of time as including all times, experiencing the time the way we might experience the self. That when sequential time is forgotten, maybe, like the self might be, this present moment arrays across all times. Obviously, it's not much of a stretch to acknowledge passing sequential time. This is how we experience the world. This is what loss is. In some ways, Loss as an experience confirms this kind of sequential time. Loss really wakes us up to it, maybe. We experience cause and effect, and loss confirms it. Again, I wish to be descriptive here without being cold or clinical about death. My uncle, who I mentioned earlier, died when he was riding his motorcycle to the famous Sturgis motorcycle rally. And then he was riding there, filled with excitement for the event, a teenage driver, not seeing him from being partly blinded by the setting sun, crashed her car into his motorcycle, sending his body hurtling through the air. This is sequential time, cause and effect. Again, I can understand this, even if it's shocking. I can understand loss as part of that kind of time. I have a more difficult time understanding this notion that there are all these other times at play. Of course, of course, that's what we might have trouble understanding. Sequential time, cause and effect. These are the waters we swim in day to day. The other sense of time that that co-identified time going in all directions, perhaps, you know, with effect, perhaps preceding cause is much more difficult to square with our everyday lives and with loss, I think. A a few paragraphs further into Uji, uh, Dogen writes, As the time right now is all there ever is, each being time is without exception entire time. A grass being and a form being are both times. Entire being, the entire world, exists in a time of each and every now. Just reflect. Right now, is there an entire being or an entire world missing from your present time or not? 
Again, I'll take a moment to appreciate the poetry of Dogen's language. Entire being, the entire world exists in the time of each and every now. Each and every now is, is such a beautiful phrase. Still, the question posed at the end of the paragraph gnaws at me. Just reflect, he writes. Right now, is there an entire being or entire world missing from your present time or not? Well, yes. There are many entire beings missing from our present time. People who I can name right now, people who I and others miss greatly. There's great loss. There are people and beings who are not coming back. There's even a sense that we're losing the world as we ever knew it. So I want to tell Dogen, wake up from your mysticism. He might pose that time runs in all directions, that we are present with the past and future right now, that when we practice, we become arrayed across time in all directions. But that's not what it feels like. That's not what loss feels like. You're lonely, sad. You can't fathom at the same time. uh, You can't fathom death at the same time that you're dealing with extremely material effects. There is no one there anymore like they used to be, like they are supposed to be. This resistance to loss makes a lot of sense, obviously, and is a natural part of grief. When we miss someone, that means we love them. Things change, of course. We accept this more or less in our daily lives when it's like the realm of a flower going from seed to bud or the phases of the moon. But death, do things really have to change that much? The nature of change, though, is the same all over. Firewood is firewood, ash is ash. And in one sense, they are just that in their particular Dharma positions without past or future. And in another sense, everything is changing all the time without fail and without interruption. We don't resist this change when it seems to benefit us, when it does not interrupt our sense of stability and certainty. And of course, we resist it deeply when this change takes away someone we love, when we are thrown into instability and uncertainty. And who can blame us? This resistance, though, ultimately is setting us up for more suffering. And and really, I want to emphasize, I understand the resistance deeply. I get it. It's okay to resist. And maybe this is a portal to understanding our suffering. Maybe this resistance, if we're awake to it, can help us to see past or at least see the duality we're forcing on the world, that there is missing and not missing loss and not loss, death and not death, or death and life. When with practice, maybe we might find this duality, simply a conception of our mind that the world is too changing, too interdependent, too whole to exist as something so bifurcated, so delineated. Life is not just life. Death is not just death. What seems to be missing may not be missing at all. Note my qualifications, my resistance still. And again, that's okay. But maybe being awake to this dualism between what might be missing and what is not can help us be a bit more awake to our suffering and more accepting of it. In her chapter on this section of Uji, Shinshu Roberts writes, including the suffering is key to actualizing our compassion and wisdom since we don't live in a state of non-duality where everything appears the same and we have no likes or dislikes. Knowing one thing is knowing all things. This knowing has to include flowers falling, headaches, loss, intense love, and deep aversion. Nothing can be rejected or ignored. We need to understand that whether we are open to including the totality of our experience, the totality is present anyway. This is the hundred grasses making the world and each grass existing as the world. Include everything. Know one thing. Know your grief. Include your grief. Yes to the firewood, yes to the ash, and yes to the myriad other forms. Awaken to sequential time and also the possibility of all time. Awake to the possibility of surprise. But if you pay close attention, loss may transform in ways that surprise you, in ways that confirm life again. To express this possibility, I'll turn to another poet for guidance, the contemporary poet Ross Gay. He has a poem about the death of his father called Burial. 
I'm not going to read the entire poem because it's a little long. I'll just read parts of it. At the beginning of the poem, his father has been cremated and Ross Gay is sprinkling his ashes onto the roots of two newly planted plum trees. Along with being a poet, Ross Gay also works in an orchard. Gay writes, the magic dust our bodies become casts spells on the roots about which someone else could tell you the chemical processes. But it's just magic to me, which is why a couple of springs ago, when first putting in my two bare root plum trees out back, I took the jar, which has become my father's house, and lonely for him and hoping to coax him back for my mother as much as me, poured some of him in the planting holes, and he dove in glad for the robust air. Gay describes some of the ashes going into his nose and mouth and him chuckling as he coughed. But mostly he, speaking of his father here, and I'm quoting from the poem again, disappeared into the minor yawns in the earth into, into which I placed the trees, splaying wide their roots, casting the gray dust of my old man evenly throughout the hole, replacing then the clods of dense Indiana soil until the roots and my father were buried. Gay writes about his father riding the elevator up through the cambium and into the leaves of the tree, where when you put your ear close enough, you can hear him whisper, good morning, where if you close your eyes and push your face, you can feel his stubbly jowls. And good Lord, this year he was giddy at the first real fruit set and nestled into 30 or 40 plums in the two trees, peering out from the sweet meat with his hands pressed against the purple skin like cathedral glass. Gay's father is now in the tree, in the plums even. Later, by the magic of his poetry, Gay briefly drops us into his his father's dying, describing his intubated body listing like a boat keel side up and the last wind in his body wandering off while my brother wailed like an animal. And my mother said, weeping, it's okay. It's okay. You can go, honey. Gay then returns to the palm his father has become, which he has picked from the tree and is now taking a bite from buckets of juice. Again, quoting from the poem down my chin, staining one of my two button down shirts. And then his father quote, almost dancing now in the plum in the tree in the way he did as a person bent over and biting his lip and chucking the one hip out, then the other with his elbows cocked and fists loosely made and eyes closed and mouth made trumpet when he knew he could make you happy just by being a little silly and sweet. I just love that poem. Maybe because like all great poetry through its genius of language and imagination, It wakes you up to the reality of the world. It is one thing to comfort someone for their loss by saying that their lost mother or father, son or daughter, lover or friend is still with us. That is true. But it's quite another to prove it like Gay has done here, to show us so clearly that loss is change and change is magnificent and entirely mysterious. Ash is ash, plum is plum, ash is plum too. Father is plum. Loss is loss. It is as real as it gets. When you're with a dying person, you know this. But loss is not loss as well. Nothing in this world goes missing, not from time. If we look closely, we can know this, and it may be a comfort as we go on. Thank you very much. And I'm, oh, and I should have said from the beginning, I'm, you know, happy to hear questions, comments, uh, to make this a conversation discussion. Thank you, Bo, for um, a beautiful talk and uh, very poetic and moving. And uh, yes, uh, it's all flowing in time and it's all, all here. Being time, as a, as a phrase in Japanese, just means sometimes also. And so, yes, Dogen is playing with that. And 
grief and loss is playing with that. So anyway, comments, responses, questions uh, for Bo, please feel free. Oh, there's a chat from Zoe, uh, who we can't see. She says, thank you so much, Bo. I apologize for not having a sound or video on bows to all. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Zoe. Wait. That, uh, that poem reminded me of, uh, as I lay dying, Mm-hmm. By by Faulkner, maybe not fourth grade reading material, but um, but it's it's famous for having the the chapter where the entirety of the chapter is my mother is a fish, mm-hmm. uh, spoken by a young man who's a very oh he's I don't know six or something in that book four I don't know um, whose mother has just died, but his father's butchering a fish for dinner, and so he's struggling with the fact that his mother's not there anymore. And he's like, is my mother this fish now? Mm-hmm. So he comes to the conclusion, my mother is a fish. Um, and it's a little bit ridiculous, but he's, he's doing, he's doing what that, what that poet was doing basically right through the eyes of a child mm-hmm. uh, and more, more true maybe than even Faulkner guessed at the time, but mm-hmm. I should give him more credit than that. I appreciate that. Thank you, Wade. Yeah, Matt. Hey, Bo. Thank you for your talk. I agree. It was beautiful. Um, thank you. I don't know if we've met on Zoom, but I practice up in Minnesota. But mm-hmm. it's a privilege to hear your talk tonight. There were two points especially stuck with me, and I'll briefly mention them. If you want to respond to either of them or sure. or neither of them, that's fine. Early on in your talk, you said um, it was a bizarre privilege to be around all that grief. And uh you labeled something that I, I think I've experienced myself. So I agree, although I'm sure our experiences were different. But if you want to speak to that bizarre privilege idea, or you brought up the idea of um, how do we practice with loss? You know, one surprise in my practice, and this actually came years in um, when I started taking it more seriously, it made me more sensitive, which was kind of a surprise. Like it, I started hurting more and I'm like, I thought I was going to deal with suffering better. It actually made me suffer more. Yeah. I realized um, it's better <laughs> to suffer than to just ignore it. And I don't want to go back to that insensitive, you know, that I think a lot of us experienced early before maybe our practice deepens. So if you want to speak to either of that, either the, the bizarre privilege of being around grief or just how, you know, our practice really does make us more sensitive. And I think that's really how I practice with loss. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate both points. Um, Yeah, for the first, um, you know, I guess being just slightly outside of the immediate family unit, um, it gave me, I don't know, a little bit, a tiny bit of distance to this experience, you know? And so, um, you know, I I was close to my mother-in-law, but obviously it's not the same relationship as it would be for my wife and her siblings and my father-in-law. Right. And so I just feel like in the last month or whatever that I, you know, just to be there while other people are, you know, not only to be there, but to try to be as helpful as possible while other people are experiencing um, pretty intense grief at times. Yeah, it's, I probably, I wouldn't have described it as a privilege, like as a younger, more immature person, but I feel like it's a privilege now, you know, to experience life like that, you know, Uh, I I feel like, obviously, I don't want my mother-in-law to have passed away, but I feel gratitude in a way for just being close 
close enough to be helpful in a way, you know, um, or as helpful as I can be. And then, yeah, I mean, I agree about practice. It always strikes me too. It's like Zen, I think is popularly like thought of as kind of formal and cold a little bit. And it's definitely made me a lot more sensitive. And I, you know, I referenced that dead starfish, the picture and that, I mean, it really does like hurt me to see that, you know, and that would not have been a case, the case before practicing, I think like, and then, I mean, and that's difficult, right? Like, cause there's a lot of loss and a lot of death. And so, and that's why I think it's, it's such a central pro question to, you know, our practice of how to practice with loss, because the more you practice, the more open you become to loss and maybe the closer that experience becomes. So, um, but yeah, I'm with you. I feel, you know, a lot more sensitive and, and yeah, I would not want to go back either, you know? Uh, and it's a, it's a push and pull thing, you know, cause it's not always, you, you, <laughs> you're awake to your insensitivity in a way too, right. That you weren't before. And <laughs> so that hurts a little bit in the way of like, well, I'm not quite as evolved as I thought I was, you know, or as enlightened. So thank you for your uh, comments. Um, hi, both. Thank you for your talk. Um, it, I, it was really beautiful. And um, thinking kind of about um, time and change and loss in terms of climate change, you know, with that like report that <laughs> came out today and just, you know, I was just thinking about how time seems different, I think, with things, you know, like with things like the effects of climate change speeding up and knowing that they they're sort of going faster than we even thought they might. Um, and that they're, I mean, unless we do something like, um, that they will just keep speeding and speeding up. And it's, um, I too kind of have this, you know, like if like, you know, the, the image of the starfish, it's, I've not seen the image you're talking about, but it, if things like that affect me in the same way and yeah, just this sort it feels so relevant now. Just, I, I think, with everything surrounding climate change, like how to, how to live and how to practice. Um, I mean, we're always losing things. Loss is always a part of life, but just, just in this way, I mean, we, it, it's already been happening, but just the sort of, you know, like, like how to do that and, um, and how to, and I feel that like, just in my daily life, I feel more of a sense of grief because of what's happening in terms of the climate. and so. Yeah, these it all feels um, really important to be sitting with, and um, yeah. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and, and what makes climate hard too is, well, you know, generally, like we're at fault, right? <laughs> uh, you know, and I think more act, you know, certain particular actors, you know are more at fault than other actors too. I think if, if we're looking for like a justice in this case, like, you know, it's worth acknowledging that, but you know, generally, yeah, it's like, and that's what makes climate difficult for me, you know, or it's not just about me, but just that sense of loss. And it's not just the ebb and flow of life. It's this accelerated ebb and flow. It feels like that we're the engine of, and and I love human beings, you know, like, I don't think the answer is to like dream of our extinction, you know, as a way out of this, um, which I think even some environmentalists kind of propose and, you know, in their darker moments. Um, so it's like, how do we practice with a loss with loss that again, you know, we're the engine of, um, I don't know. <laughs> I think actually this is, you know, it just strikes me that talking about it is kind of a big deal actually. Like, because we all read this stuff and it's like depressing and maybe we, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's like, you know, my, my wife and I might be like, Oh, this is scary. And then, you know, like, but uh, it's like your partner, but you know, 
it's like maybe doesn't want to hear as much about that after a while and like you know vice versa it's like so just connecting with each other about the shared grief and 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 what i found through working on this talk is like yeah i really do believe grief can be transformed i mean i think this practice tells us like things can be transformed and so to acknowledge the grief to work with it to have it part of us it doesn't have to be that grief like debilitates us. I don't think that's how it works. Um, it can be that um, grief is, you know, that we can change our grief into, I hope, like action to stop burning fossil fuels. <laughs> I think that's still possible. But thank you. Yeah, thank you, Bo. Uh, facing grief is, uh, well, it's, it's where we're at. It's what we need to do. Running away from it doesn't help. And, and, and thank you for mentioning the starfish. I hadn't seen that picture. Uh, as a child, I uh, spent some summers in Cape Cod and was often on the beach, and there were, there were starfish. There were lots of starfish. They were really amazing creatures. And so I did not see that picture. I did see a picture of mussels and was, um, you know, kind of overwhelmed the way you described it with the starfish because I heard that mussels and clams and other shellfish in the Northwest boiled in, in their natural place in the ocean. It's just, it's just horrifying. And and yet, if we um, sort of don't look at it and don't look at climate, or if we are afraid to look at it, or if we think, well, there's nothing we can do, it's and and just well, we're all going to go extinct or something like that. That's not that's not it. Mm-hmm. And there are things to do and uh, to try and uh, help move from fossil fuels to, you know, the actually uh, more economically, uh, uh, economical solar and so forth anyway. Um, but yeah, the practice of just facing grief is powerful yeah, and, and transformative. And so thank you for, for that. Yeah. Thank you. Well, and I appreciate you Tigan, because you know, that, that you as a teacher in a Sangha, don't shy away from bringing this stuff forward because it is reality, you know? Um, and, and our practice for me at least is about being awake to reality and, and whether we like it or not, that's the reality that we are living in right now, you know? And I think even in the midst of that, we can have the joy of our daily lives and happiness and good relationships with people and the things that, you know, a person can reap from life um, and also, you know, the grief of kind of facing reality as it is right now. And and hopefully the fortitude to kind of change the way we're doing things. Yeah. We can respond. Right. To situations of grief. Right. Like you're reading that poem about the, about man's, the poet's father, coming into the plums it was just beautiful yeah amazing uh all the images in it of him and like inside the plum like phyllis thank you so much for the talk it was wonderful um I just wanted to add to the what Matt brought up about practice make us more sensitive <laughs> to grief, to suffering, to sadness in general. Um, I certainly uh, agree compared to the me who uh, before practice, I definitely feel less, um, especially suffering that is surrounding me. 
But I also like to look at that as um, practice give, gave me more courage mm. to face suffering. And therefore, I can face more of it. <laughs> um, I'm more open to, to feel it and feel it deeper. I'm more courageous in terms of showing my sadness. Mm. Um, and, and I think that is all part of the process of getting to the point where you can actually work with it and transform it. Yeah, I so appreciate that. Yeah, I really agree. Courage is such a great word, and um, um, that that can be a benefit of our practice is is huge. I think, and and it does take courage to face, um, you know, things that you know will cause you more suffering, um, but it feels necessary too. Um, it takes courage to you know, try to awake to reality as it is, you know, Um, because it's not probably made the way that you want it to be. And that hurts, you know. Uh, But that also, just like that quote from Shinshu Roberts, it awakens you to such uh, compassion and wisdom and that that to have those be the sort of outcomes of that courage is, is makes it very much worth it, I think. So, yeah, thank you. And it's great to see you, too, Phyllis. Ed? I haven't spoken, so I I suppose I should, especially since I'm visible. (laughs) It's good to see you. Um, Great to see you. You're out of state. You're in upstate New York. But when I, when I look at a map, I'm always surprised at how it's not that far from Chicago, in a way. You just have to go around all the water to get there. Yeah, it's just... And go, huh? No, yeah, yeah. It was just a 13-hour drive. It's not that bad, actually. But that's long. That's fairly long still, I have to say. But, but uh, it's a very different world, no doubt. Catskills. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. definitely... Uh, but thank you very much for your talk. I, I very much appreciate um, the talk and enjoyed hearing it. And also to what Phyllis is, 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 has uh, touched on, I, th- I mean, in my mind, loss is a feeling. And the capacity to face it is the capacity to feel. Hmm. And in many ways, loss, even gaining something is a feeling. And we might... And for me, I might even think that it's nothing more than a feeling at the end of the day. I mean, other than it being acknowledged in a social, in a, through a social mechanism, which you described several, and that's the act of object observing the behaviors of others. But the, the practice of sitting in order to come to terms with feeling things is quite an undertaking, of which, of course, loss is one of the objects that we don't always feel because it's scary. And so feeling to me is, is very much nearly at the centerpiece of uh, your talk, mm-hmm. the feel. So I just wanted to make that, ob- I, that personal observation. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ed. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's unquestionably there's sadness and, you know, is resistance a feeling? I don't know. You know, I, I just find at the base of it is just this kind of frustration with how things go. And, um, yeah, and, and that's, you can kind of intellectualize it, but it is just kind of the, the frustration of living a life. And <clears throat> um it feels very simple, you know, to acknowledge that, but then it's a, a very difficult practice to, to, to work kind of forthrightly with it too. 
two little points. One is that, or not so little, he said 1,300 miles, but in this little Zoom box we're all in. <laughs> we have New York, Bo is in New York, and Matt's in Minnesota, and Amin is in California. Oh, There's wow. 3,000 miles here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so just to say that, and wow. And, and, and you mentioned the word courage and that you like that word. And it reminded me the root of that, I think, cur is heart. Mm. So, you know, heart is, well, I don't know. It's an organ, but it's also feeling and, and, and just uh, giving our heart to life and change and yeah. yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so happy I was able to zoom in from New York today. Um, doesn't feel far away. The wonders of Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't have been saying that two years ago. <laughs> Thank you all for being here and for your practice, for your comments. Thank you, Bo. Uh, Wade, maybe we can close with the four vows.